uh, can see the great progression through this chapter. Uh, I want to read for you here, putting up in verse 4, coming down through 8, and then uh, I'll show you how this progression is working. And you need to really get this in your Bible if you don't have it already. But it says this, For, for uh, as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. For we, being many, are not one in body in Christ, but every one member one of another. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for all that you do for us. We thank you for those that are here today. Thank you for our church, for the Bible that you've given us. And Lord, uh, never let us lose our focus, Father, as of what uh, we need to do and how we need to, uh, what we need to be about. Uh, we love you, Father. We thank you for the time that we've set aside today. May uh, the Word of God uh, enrich our hearts, and may we leave here a little a little closer to you in our relationship and a little better uh, uh, understanding, Father, of what you have for us. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. As I said, certainly by now you can see the great progression through this chapter. In verse 1, we saw that God wants you and I to be a living sacrifice. And we talked about that. We looked at it in, in really in great detail. And uh, in fact, that was probably one of the hardest messages uh, that, uh, in this section. And then in verse 2, we, we saw, but the, God may want us to be a living sacrifice, but the problem is we can never attain that by being conformed to this world. And we talked about that. The fact that, you know, once we get saved... Uh, we have a choice, and that choice is, am I going to let God have my body? Remember, we talked about the fact that uh, uh, what does really God want about you and me? God wants our body, and He wants our body to be a living sacrifice. And uh, it was, it, it, that's what He wants. But you will never do that as long as we keep on trying to be conformed to this world. And then we looked at, at the bottom of verse 2, but the thing that will absolutely guarantee it for us that we, will be trans- that we will be everything God wants us to be, is to go through that process of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked about that. And then last week, you remember, verse 3, we talked about how to do that. You do this by getting saved. We know that by grace are you saved through faith. Then we talked about the fact that God gave each of us the measure of faith, just enough faith to get saved. And with that faith, faith then becomes a process. And that process is a process to strengthen your faith. Exercise it, we talked about it. Developing that faith through the things which you do for God. We talked about how that in the great chapter in Hebrews chapter 11, that chapter of Hall of Fame of God, that in studying Enoch's life, we talked about the four men and the aspects of faith in your life, that it's impossible to please God without faith. Because faith is the essence of our spiritual maturity. You will only be as strong for God in what you do as you can trust God for in your everyday life. And it's just that simple. And now that's what we call in Bible study a progressive outline of a chapter. 
That's what we call progressively going through a chapter in the Bible and and uh, each section adding uh, and, and adding to the last and building on the previous verse or concept. And it, at the end, it lays out a theme. And that's what we're doing here. Now, today we want to see the next level. We want to see the next level that comes as we transform ourselves. And we want to see the aspect of the spiritual gifts in your life that God gives us. You know, we talk a lot around here. In fact, it's one of our discipleship lessons. I think it's lesson six. Uh, we talk a lot around here about God's will for your life versus God's plan for your life. And I don't, I'm not going to go through all that again today. We've been through it many, many times. And if you've been discipled here, you know exactly what that concept is. But many times we think that God's will and God's plan are the same. Now, we've laid it out very clearly over the, over the last couple of years uh, since we've been teaching the Bible, and many of you have learned it, is that uh, there's a big difference between God's will and God's plan for your life. God's will will always be the spiritual side of things. God's will will never be what you do for God, but God's will will always be what you are inside for God. But on the other hand, God's plan will never be what you are, but God's plan will be what you do. And here's how it works, real simple. As you, and this is the outline, progressive outline here. As you fulfill and transform yourself to become more like a living sacrifice for God, that is basically you fulfilling God's will for your life. As you do that, through your spiritual fulfilling uh, the things of God in your life, then he reaches down through you and he does his plan through your life. And today we're going to see the next level of how it fits into your life. I've showed you verses 1 through 3, basically God's will, and how you get God's will on the inside. Now we're going to look at the practical side of it and, uh, and show you how that God's plan comes into your life, and we're going to talk about the gifts that each one of you have today. Probably, at this time of year anyhow, hopefully, your wife, fellas, have bought something for you for Christmas. You may know what it is. You may not know what it is. But the bottom line is this, and hopefully, women, your husbands have bought you something, or your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend, have bought you something for Christmas. Now, as we sit here this morning, I could probably safely say this. In either scenario, you have a gift for the one that you love. Maybe multiple gifts. But you have taken the time to think what they wanted or what they needed, and you went out and purchased a gift. And you did it because you saw that maybe it was something that they wanted. Maybe it was something that they needed. So you went out and you got a gift. They do not know what it is today, but you have a gift for them. Well, God has some gifts for you. And those gifts don't just come at Christmas time. Those gifts are the things that are inside you right now that you don't know that you have. Those gifts are what God, when he sees you, and when you begin to fulfill God's will in your life, and God begins to enact his plan in your life, that's when these gifts become part of the process because you need these gifts to be able to do the work that God has for you. Man said to me one time, and I've never heard a truer statement than this, and I'm a collector of sayings. I probably have 800 sayings uh, in my, one of my notebooks at home 
uh, that I've just heard over the last 35, 40 years that I thought, man, that really says what I wanted to say. And I've kept them. And, you know, once a year, twice a year, I'll just take a day or two days and I'll go down through all those sayings just to refresh them in my mind. I use them all the time. But I heard a man say one time uh, that I've never heard anything truer than this. The man said simply this. The mark of a successful child of God, male or female, the mark of a successful Christian is the man or the woman who simply finds out what God wants them to do with their life and then simply does it. You know that's so simple in its concept, but it is absolutely almost impossible for most of God's people to ever achieve. Because we don't really understand what success is with God. We live in a world where the definitions have totally been changed. In reality, that concept is so simple, but it is one of the most confusing issues today uh, in all of Christianity. The mark of a successful man or woman for God, Christian, will simply be this, in your life and my life, finding out after you're saved what the job is that God wants you to do recognizing within you the gifts that God has given you to get that job done and then doing it. And I might add a great verse to you found in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 which simply says this and I think it's a great verse. It says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whether thou goest. Boy, that's a true statement. In other words, simply this, ladies and gentlemen. God puts you down here, and you're likened to a tree. And everybody knows, and you've heard me say this many, many times, and I'm surely not going to belabor the point. You've heard me say many, many times, trees have their fruit-bearing seasons. We're in December right now, headed for Christmas. You have an apple tree in your backyard, don't go looking for apples. The season for bearing fruit for trees in our hemisphere is over for a while. And there comes a time in your life when God puts you down here and you have a fruit-bearing season. Your job and my job is to get tied into God as quickly as you can, give God everything that He wants, find out what the job is, what God's plan is for your life through fulfilling God's will for your life, letting God give you the gifts to get it done, and then getting it done. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about uh, verse 6, which really pulls it all together. And I want to explain this process to you. Verse 6 says, having gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. I want to talk about the gifts that God has given you. I want you to leave here today understanding, first of all, and clearing up the confusion, because I think that the concept of spiritual gifts is one of the most confusing things today in all of Christianity. I think it's absolutely, the average child of God has no idea. The average pastor today has no clue of what's going on and how this thing lays itself out. The average child of God has no idea how to even look within themselves to discern what their gifts are. And it's a cause of a, lot of, of a lot of bad information. Now, as I said, I think that the idea of spiritual gifts today is one of the most confusing things uh, that we have to deal with as, as God's people. 
Now, this is not going to be the definitive on it because if you want the definitive chapter on spiritual gifts in the Bible, it'll be 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. It's not my, it's not my purpose today to define all the spiritual gifts. When you get back there, you'll find where God breaks them down into categories, and that's how you really learn it. But I'm not interested in that today. No, I simply want you to go out of here today understanding the process by which you find out what God wants you to do and then the process by which you get it done and show you how spiritual gifts fall into that. I've actually seen churches, and probably some of you have been in these churches. I have actually seen churches that give the spiritual gift test. You'll go to the church, and they'll have a spiritual gift conference, and they'll have some spiritual gift expert. And they'll talk about the fact that, that you, ought to, you ought to exercise your spiritual gifts. Amen. They'll talk about the fact that uh, you need to, uh, you've got spiritual gifts. God has with you and, and how mysterious they are. And, you know, but uh, this guy, uh, he's, come up with the, uh, he's come up with the greatest program since sliced bread. And that is a, a basically a test you can take. And that test is, is your spiritual gift profile. It'll show you your primary gift, which is the one you really need to work on, the one you have. And then it'll show you maybe your secondary gifts. And the way you do it is you get, what, a 200 questionnaire with 200 questions on it? You know, favorite color, favorite dog, you know, seven spiritual laws, all those things. And then when you, when you lie them out and you lay them all down, then you get the, you, then you get the great key to it all. You get, the, you get the decipher key. You get the, you get the thing that now you, you use this based on what you said, and it scores you and rates you. And at the end of the test, it, because of what you wrote based on what the, the little key guide gives you, you can, you, can, you can ascertain now what exactly your main spiritual gifts are. Oh, and what a great thing that is. Ladies and gentlemen, the, the, that's not the test for you to find out your spiritual gifts. But I want to give you the test today. I want to show you what it is. I want you to understand very clearly from the Bible. How did you realize what your spiritual gifts are? Now let me just say this. Right now. Right now. If you're saved here this morning. Let's start with this. When God looks at you right now, he sees you in the plan and the role that he wants you to fulfill in your life. You need to understand that. He doesn't see you in a, in a, in a t-shirt today or a shirt and tie or a, a striped shirt or a leather jacket. He doesn't see you, uh, he didn't see you uh, necessarily in your spiritual growth, though he understands that. No, when he sees you and me, He sees you and me as the finished product. In other words, what he wants us to be. A lot of guys teach the fact that uh, when you get saved, you start doing things for God and you get your spiritual rewards. And at the judgment seat of Christ, it's based on how you went through life. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that. I think it might be like this. I think it might be the day you got saved, God gives you everything you got right there, and then he strips it off as we go through life by the things we don't do, not the things that we do do. Do do, I like that word, that's a good word. 
Now, to me, one of the greatest things I learned a number of years ago about the Bible has helped me, Mommy, to more than anything else. Because in life, you have to make decisions. As a pastor, I have to make decisions every day. As a Christian, you have to make decisions every day, as I do. We have to make decisions about people in our lives, circumstances in our life. We have to make decisions about everything in life. And for me, when I look at the Bible, the Bible is a book made up of models, patterns. I learned that one time by going through the book of Hebrews where I saw that everything in the Old Testament was laid out by a pattern. Do you think Moses, when he made the tabernacle, do you think Moses, when he made uh, all the things that he did and all the furnishings of the tabernacle, did you ever go back in Exodus uh, 12 and 25 and 23 and look at all the intricate things that are in that tabernacle? When I used to look at that and I used to think, wow, man, Moses must have been a smart guy. He just started out and must have been a great woodworker. He started out and, and put all this stuff together. And then one day I read in Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, as I was coming through there, I found out that Moses wasn't as smart as I thought he was. Moses did do all of that stuff, but you know how he did it? God gave him a pattern. Once I saw that, my whole life changed because then I realized that the Bible is not only a book that tells me what to do and not to do, but the Bible is a book that has a pattern in it for everything I know how to do. Our little guys Thursday night, their favorite line was, we speak where the Bible speaks, and we stay silent where the Bible's silent. Did anybody catch here what was wrong with that? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. I don't know of anything the Bible doesn't speak to. Now, I could take you into the Bible and show you why when you go out deer hunting and you got to go to the bathroom, I'll show you the procedure for you to do it. Is that too coarse for you? Then you never had to be in a deer stand and go to the bathroom. Well, I can tell you. Bible even talks about stuff like that. I can take you in the Bible and show you what kind of pictures you should have on your wall in your home and what kind you shouldn't. I don't know anything in life the Bible doesn't speak to. You know why? Because the Bible provides a pattern. No, I know what the first question is going to be on Thursday night this week. Where does it say in the Bible when you got to go to the bathroom in a deer stand? Because you guys are biblical, and I know you're a lot of deer hunters in here. You would never want to violate Scripture in the woods. I'm sorry I, I'm not more sophisticated than that, but you know what? That was the basest thing I could think of. I mean, you're going to sh shoot your mouth off to me and say the Bible is silent. Where is that? Bible's not silent on anything. It tells you everything. Models in the Bible, they're very important. And when God looks at you and me right now, through his foreknowledge, right now, the moment you got saved or wherever you're at in your walk with him, right now, through his foreknowledge, he sees in you the finished product. Now, you may never get there. You may never fulfill it. You may never get God's plan in sync with God's will for your life. And we may wind up at the judgment seat of Christ without anything. But the bottom line is this. It will not be God's fault. And as he looks at you right now, he sees you and wants and has everything for you. But there's a process you've got to go through to get it. 
And it isn't by taking some goofy test. When it comes to the gifts that God has for you, that He's given you, that you need in your life to fulfill God's plan for your life, because the bottom line is this, Isaiah 55, 11, God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways and thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I think on one level, he works on another level. How in the world am I going to ever do God's work unless God gives me what I need? You talk about salvation being a gift. I got news for you. Shows the ministry. And he gives it to you through the gifts that he's made available for you and me to do the job. Now, let me just, first of all, let me define these things. The gifts of the Spirit. Oh, boy. Boy, we hear a lot about that in Bible study. You can go out and buy so-and-so's book, How to Get the Gifts of the Spirit. Oh, the charismatics are bigger now. Oh, the gifts of the Spirit. Let me define the gifts of the Spirit for you. The gifts of the Spirit in the Bible will always be the power of God in your life to do what God wants you to do. Plain and simple. It's real easy. Spiritual gifts in the Bible will always be the power of God in your life to do whatever God has called you to do. Plain and simple. Not complicated. Ah, but there's another aspect that you never hear about. Not only is there the gift of the Spirit... But coming through your Bible in the book of Galatians, you'll find there's something else called the fruit of the Spirit. And you hear a lot today about the gifts of the Spirit. But you don't hear anything about the fruit of the Spirit in connection with the gift of the Spirit. Now let me define that. Where the gifts of the Spirit will be the power of God that He gives you to do what He's called you to do. The fruit of the Spirit will be the character of God The character qualities of God that we need to put in our lives as we grow every day. Now, here's the bottom line. And this is where the concept of spiritual gifts in most Christians' minds just go out the window. You cannot have the power of God in your life to do what God wants you to do until you have the character of God in your life. That's the progression of Romans chapter 12 so far. Living sacrifice. Be not conformed. Be ye transformed. Then the gifts come in. You'll never have the power of God in your life until you have the character qualities of God in your life. And that's why most of what goes on in Christianity is just flesh. It's just a lot of people wanting to play church and having a great time without understanding anything going on at what God wants them to do. And right now as we sit here this morning, God sees you and he sees me in the role that he wants you and I to fulfill. Your job and my job is to see the same thing and then get it done. It's that simple. Now, I want to say this to you. Sitting here right now, you probably don't see your spiritual gifts. That's the way it's supposed to be. I don't know any man in the Bible who recognized his spiritual gifts when he first got plugged into God. Jeremiah didn't. Moses didn't. Samuel didn't. David didn't. And Paul didn't. 
I could go on endless. I don't think any man in the Bible ever, ever, when he first got plugged into God, ever saw exactly what God wanted him to do. And when he got a glimpse of it, scared him to death. Our famous phrase, well, he made up his mind yet. Nah, he's still beating around the bush. That's Moses. That's Moses. Moses, God said to Moses, I got something I want you to do. Moses argued with God and literally beat around the bush with God. You know why? Because he was afraid. You know why he was afraid? He couldn't see the end result yet. Now, how does this work? Really, how does this work? It works through a model. Everything and I do in this church, everything I do with you as an individual, everything I do in my own personal life as best I can, I try to base it on a model. Do I always do it? No. Do I fail sometimes? <laughs> Absolutely. But that doesn't change the fact that I understand that the model is in the right place. I got home in some place in my files. 647 different models in the Bible of what things are and how they're to operate. And there's probably 60,000 more of them in there. Models are the key. Finding something. When God said to Moses, he says, I want you to make the tabernacle. Hebrews chapter 8 and 9 says, given by the pattern which God gave him. There was a model to it. There was a pattern to it. Now, what is the pattern? What is the model in the Bible for you and me? What is the pattern? What is the model in the Bible for you and me as a New Testament saved, born again, child of God, to get through this process where you not only recognize your spiritual gifts, but then you learn how to use them? And of course, the greatest model will be a young man found in Acts chapter 16, and his name is Timothy. I want you to turn for a moment to Acts chapter 16. And now we're going to pick it up there just in the first couple of verses here, and we'll come down through it and, uh, and read some things about him. But let me say this about Timothy. <clears throat> Timothy is, for me, I can't speak for you, Timothy for me is the great, greatest model I use in dealing with people, male or female. Timothy is the model. He is the pattern. I don't know if you know it or not. I know I never gave it to you from me because I use these things and some things I never give out because, you know, they're invaluable to me in, 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 in defi- defining and discerning where people are at sometimes. But I do know this. When I look at a young man or a young lady, when I look at a young man or a young lady from the potential of what they're going to do in, my, in our church, when I look at them as, a, as the pastor of this church, and I look at them as a potential somebody who's going to be part of my ministry and who's going to pick up part of the mantle and going to do with it. Uh, what, these, there, there are seven things. There are seven absolute things in Timothy's life that you want to look for. Seven absolute things that when you start to see these things in somebody, you don't have to turn your notebook or page because I'm not giving them to you. That would defeat my whole purpose. But I'm telling you, there are seven things you look for 
in a young man or a young lady based on the pattern. Now, when you see those things in their life, even when they don't see it, and they won't see it. They're not supposed to see it. I'm supposed to see it. Paul saw it in Timothy. But putting that aside, what I want you to see here are four areas in his life by which God revealed to him his spiritual gift, the plan that God had for him. And I'm going to say it again. God has something, a plan, a rule for every one of you. If you're saved here this morning, there's something God has for you to do. You may never do it. You may never figure out what it is. That doesn't change the fact that when he looks at you right now, he sees you in that role. And when you don't fulfill that role, that's when you grieve the Holy Spirit of God. But that's how he looks at it. And that's how he sees it. And every child of God ought to understand this bottle. Let me read it here. Then he, then came he, Paul, to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek or a Gentile. And as they went through the cities, they delivered them to the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so uh, were all the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into all of the aspects of this. But I do want you to see some things about Timothy in four areas that this is what God... Now, here's a young man that started out just like you. Now, the Bible says that he's from, uh, he's from uh, Derby and Lystra. What does that mean? Well, Derby was a suburb of the, of the city of Lystra. It'd be a lot like you living in Raytown in proximity to Kansas City or Lee Summit or somewhere like that. In other words, Derby was a little south of Lystra, but within the same area of jurisdiction. And, and, and Timothy started out just like you and me. I guarantee you, just as God sees you today, when young Timothy was down there in that early church, God saw him and God had a plan for him. God had a role that he wanted Timothy to play. And when you study Timothy's life, he's, uh, it, it's a pretty incredible study. Paul bumps into him when he comes through Lystra and Derby on his second missionary journey. And he gets introduced to this young man. Paul invites this young man to go with him. <clears throat> Do you know why Paul invited him to go with him? I'm going to tell you right now before we even get through the story. Paul invited him because Paul saw in him the things that I see in some of you. Paul saw in him the character qualities that he knew it would take to sustain it into the ministry. And back then, the ministry was a lot rougher than it is now. Those missionary trips which they were on and where they were going was filled with people who wanted to kill them. Full of shipwreck, heartache, imprisonments, being whipped and beaten. It wasn't a piece of cake like it is today. But Paul saw in him 
Now, we don't have time to get into this today, but the two great extremes in the Bible on this particular thing is Timothy and John Mark. Remember John Mark? John Mark's the guy that went out with him first, and when things got tough, he ran home to Mama. But Timothy stayed with the stuff. And Timothy's a great example. In time, Timothy becomes absolutely invaluable to Paul. He even goes in the place of Paul sometimes, like he did at Corinth, and fixes the issues when Paul can't get there. He becomes an invaluable extension of Paul's ministry. Uh, In every sense of the word, Timothy is, is a problem solver. He's not a problem causer. He's someone who saw Paul, saw, he saw in Paul some things, Paul saw in him some things, God put the two of them together for the work because God saw in Timothy's life a role to be part of what Paul needed. And you know what he winds up being? He winds up being Paul's replacement. It's no accident that 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus and Philemon are called the pastoral epistles. They're called that because those are the men men that started out with Paul that wound up being pastors. Incredible study. You see, the job of a church is fourfold. And I, and I don't maybe I don't think fully sometimes you understand this. <clears throat> the job of a church is fourfold. First of all, the job the church exists to get you saved. The second aspect, once you get saved, the job exists to train you. The third aspect of the church is after you get trained and through your training is to equip you. That will be your spiritual gifts. And the fourth aspect of it is to send you back out. Now that doesn't mean that when you hit a certain point here we send you to Africa. It means that you go back out into the world that you came out of this time, oh, you're different. You know what's different about you? You now understand God's plan for you. It's a process. Now, let me talk very quickly about these four things. The first thing that we see in studying his life and putting it all together is the fact that Timothy got on the job training. Someplace in his life, he realized that the mode of training was not a Bible college. The load of training was not a seminary. The mode of training by God's design was a New Testament local church. Nothing like on-the-job training. Nothing like getting it where it's done and doing it here first. So the first thing we see about Timothy is he understood the importance of the local church and its ministry as a training ground. The second thing we obviously see about him as we come down through here is that once he saw that, he put himself in that, then he responded to that. He responded to it. He responded to responsibility. He realized that this was not just a fun and games thing. It wasn't a social event. That the church of Jesus Christ, people hang on the balance between heaven and hell. And your attitude about your prayer life this morning, Thursday night, or any other time, your attitude about people, your attitude about the prayer, your attitude about the ministry and your involvement in it may be the tipping balance that puts somebody in heaven or puts them in hell. He understood that. He realized that this was not some social thing. It wasn't something that you show up on Christmas and New Year's and Halloween. 
It was something that was every part. It wasn't an event that you went to. It was a lifestyle that you adopted into your life because you realized that God had a plan for you, and this is where you get it figured out. Third thing, he submitted and followed the authority within that church over him. Now, the church, and Paul makes this very clear when he talks to uh, people who are in position of leadership. This church is not here, nor is my position here to lord over you. That's not my job. I'm not here to tell you what you can do in your own personal life. You have to make your choices just like I have to make mine. I don't have a right to get into your world. I know a pastor right up the road here that if your husband and wife married, and you guys have marital problems, and you're the husband, and you don't do what's right, you know what he does as a pastor? He'll come in your house and take your wife away from you. Now, don't be asking me for this phone number, guys. That's, that was not my point. I saw David's eyes light up there when I said that, Rebecca. You better watch him. No! We had a guy in this church a while back that no longer is here, and, and he told me, he said, I went to that church, and I know this guy very well. I've known him for years. And he's such a control freak that, you know what, when church is over, you don't go home. You have to all go eat together someplace at the same spot. You know why you do that? Because you're expected to be back Sunday night service. And his way of ensuring that is to put a chain on your ankle and around your neck while you go out through the day, and then you all come back. I know a deacon that was in his church that got kicked out of his church. You know what he got kicked out for? Going deer hunting instead of coming to church on Sunday when deer season was in. I know the guy. I talked to him. I talked to him. I know the guy that got kicked out. I know, I know it's a true story. My point is this. That's not the job of a pastor. I don't care what you do with your personal life. That's between you and God. But you know what? When it becomes a taking part of my ministry here, then I care. I have a right to care. Because the stupid things or the good things you do not only reflect on this church, and reflect on me, forget that, but it reflects on Christ. See? We're not to be lords over people. But you have to be able to submit yourself to some kind of authority. You know what the problem in our world is? Some of you older people, like myself, Steve, you would, and you would understand this. You know what the difference between is, Jim, you know what the difference between is between the generation today and the generation when I grew up? We had a respect for authority. We did. I never called a policeman a cop. I never called, certainly never called him a pig. Because I was trained to respect authority over me. I would never think of disrespecting my teacher in school. I would never stand up and, and defy them. You know why? Because I was taught as you guys were, the older ones anyhow. You were taught that you respected authority. There's no respect for authority today. None at all. I feel terrible. You know, I feel terrible for you young kids in school. You know, going to school. I think the peer pressure is probably horrendous. I feel terrible for you. I mean, everywhere you turn, you know, you, 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 you wind up into something that, uh, or somebody that wants to get you to go off track. I, 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 don't, I, I don't envy at all. But the truth of the matter is, we think, we think, here's how we think. We think the times have gotten worse, so therefore there's less respect. 
See, that's what we think. I got news for you. The times aren't any worse today than they were when I grew up. The times are the same. You think the devil gets more evil as the day goes by? <laughs> you think when I was growing up, he wasn't so wicked, and now when your kid's growing up, he's really wicked? Do you really think that? No, no, no. The devil hasn't changed. Wickedness hasn't changed. Our teaching our children respect to authority has changed. See how that thing works? He obviously submitted himself and followed the authority that was over him. Then the fourth thing was he earned a title of leadership. You know what? You don't get to be a leader in a church by declaring yourself one. You become a leader in a church by following the pattern found in the Bible. And I know a lot of, I know a lot of people in a lot of churches, and I know a lot of pastors who demand that you respect them as pastor. And though the person may give them lip service on the outside, they think you're the biggest jerk they ever saw on the inside. That's not respect. That might be reality, but it's not respect. Bible says in verse 2, which was well reported by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. You see, he'd been involved in ministry. He'd come up through the ranks. He started out just like you do, just like I did. But then God put a process. He began to see these things. He began to realize that the will of God was first different than the plan of God. And he began to put the will of God into his life. And then God grew him up in the church, put him in the right place at the right time with the right people, gave him the right things. You see, my job of pastor is very simple. It's not complicated. My job is to look for those things in your life when you put them into your life and then take you as a church and do what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, stretch you, work you, use you, mobilize you, try to put you in every kind of scenario that I can think of to exercise your senses. That's really what last Thursday night was all about. Do you really think it was a debate? Maybe to you it was. To me, it was weapons training. I personally think that we ought to put the draft back in at least for a year. That's what they do in Israel. And I think every young man and every young lady ought to spend one year in military service. I think one of the declines of the discipline in this country is when we stop and abolish the draft. I really do. Now, that may, you know, that, may, that may seem strange to some of the Nancy Pelosi Christians out there, but that's just the way I look at it. You know you got Christians just like you got liberals in the government? You know that? I can't conceive of a president getting up like Obama did. And I don't have any axe to grind against Obama. I don't really care one way or the other. But I do care when he gets up before our enemies and apologizes for this country. I don't like that. He wasn't there where I was there. He was ordering pizzas in Chicago. He wasn't there when some of you were there. He wasn't there at the chosen reservoir in Korea. He wasn't there in, 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 in Beirut. He wasn't there in Vietnam. He wasn't there when the beaches ramps went down in Normandy. 
And then Harry Reid gets up and he says, well, you know what? He says, uh, our American military, uh, we got to stop just breaking into people's houses at night and killing babies and killing civilians. Oh, man, don't get me going on it. That's what's wrong with this country. They hate the military. You know what's wrong with Christianity? They hate the militant concept of Bible Christianity. I heard an old guy say one time, you know why you can't get a good choir to sing on with Christian soldiers? Because you've got too many conscientious objectors in the choir. That's why. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. You know what happens when you go into basic training? You can't do anything right. You know what happens when you come out? You do everything right. It's not about who wins or who loses Thursday night. It's not a debate. It's what did you learn from it? I watched some of you. I watched some of you nailing down everything that they made a mistake on. I watched some of you nail that thing down. I walked around and looked over your shoulder. You were, you were, you were doing what you needed to do. You were finding out what wasn't adding up and making your own assessment on it. That's the way you want to do it. It's exactly the way you want to do it. It was weapons training. I mean, there were so many things that night that you should have come away with that just changed your whole outlook. Did you notice when the guy in their church got up to address the issue, how fast they told him to shut up and sit down? Yeah, we had, we had the, the big five over here, and one of the common ordinary people stood up to address the issue, and the big cheese got up and said, sit down, we don't want you to talk, we'll handle it. You know why? That's what a cult does. You got nine guys who run the place and all everybody else is underneath their thumb. Don't you thank God for a church that you can stand up and say whatever you want whenever you want to say it? Well, if you don't, I know a church you can go to that they'll put you under that kind of pressure. You just got to get baptized, but we'll take care of that too. Let me tell you something. You know why I do things like that? I'm going to tell you why. Some of you won't get this. Some of you will never get it. I'll tell you why. Because the greatest thing that defines, the greatest thing that defines a combat soldier, the greatest thing that defines him is the fact that how he reacts when he's in the middle of the firefight. You know, we use today in the military, most of you know this, we use the M16. The M16 has been probably the standard battle weapon now for, what, 30 years? Maybe even longer than that. But the M16 was the first rifle before that in limited qualities to use the M14. The staymate for years and years and years was the OM1 Grand. And that was a great battle rifle. But they came out with what we used to call in my day the Matty Mattel because it looked like a toy gun. But the M16 was the first gun rifle issued to infantry that had a selector switch on it. It was the first assault rifle next to the AK-47, first for us. By selector switch, I mean this. You could even fire one bang, 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 or you could flip it around and go. And you could fire full automatic. And, of course, early on, early on, it became a problem. Because the thing that you have got to have as a soldier that I want to teach you. The thing you got to have is discipline under fire. I remember 1968, almost 1969. When I met him, he was a a major. But when he did his great feat in Vietnam, he was a second lieutenant. Maybe he was the first lieutenant. His last name was Anderson. 
And we had a lecture by him one time on, on controlled, sustained discipline under fire in combat. Because what was happening? Now, the standard combat loads in Vietnam was 300 to 500 rounds, put in 20-round magazines. Now, an M16 on full auto would fire 600 rounds a minute. And what was happening when they got into a firefight and they were surrounded? The boys were flipping that thing on full auto. They thought making a lot of noise and a lot of smoke would take the place of single fired shots. Now, when the enemy got in an ambush and they got surrounded, everybody panicked. And what they did, what do you think they did? They flipped that switch back to full auto, and in 15 minutes, everybody was out of ammo. And they got slaughtered. Then it was the thing you don't want to hear, fixed bayonets. After that, it's find some big rocks. <laughs> of course, we're going to throw them. Anderson said, you know what I told my guys? The next time we got in one, he said, I don't, he says, we're surrounded. We're outnumbered. He says, the thing you, I, I don't, he said, I don't want to hear one automatic weapon. He says, I want this. Every time a shot goes fired, somebody falls. If you'll take your time, pick your target, and every time that gun goes off, an enemy soldier falls, we're all going to go home tonight. If you flip the switch and fire all your ammo, we're going to get slaughtered. Discipline under fire. Discipline under fire. Nothing will define a man better than combat. Nothing. And my job is to put you into every kind of scenario. My job is to put you in situations where you are outnumbered. Where you have to get your rear end kicked. Well, you have to come to the place that you begin to learn to exercise discipline under fire. How you realize that everything you do affects somebody else. It's weapons training. It's about who wins and who loses. It's about what did you learn from it? Some of God's people never learn anything. To them, it's, well, what's the use in it? Yeah, yeah, what's the use in it? Absolutely. For you, what is the use in it? But you're never going to do anything with the Bible anyhow. But for you, who see yourself in the role and say, God, I want you to give me everything I need, you have to get your senses exercised. And you have to get into the firefight. You have to learn how to deal with it. You have to learn how to take that sword. <clears throat> hey, you know it as well as I do. Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 10. Cursed is he that keepeth back his sword from drawing blood. Learning how to use that weapon. Learning how to use that weapon. The job of a good pastor is real simple. Work close with his people. Know the state of his flocks. Get into their lives. And God will show me what your gifts are, just like he showed young Timothy. Remember now, it was Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think verse 14, where he said to Timothy, don't neglect the gift that's in you. You know why he said that? Because he saw it. He saw it. That's the job of a pastor. The job of the pastor is for you to get here, get plugged in, want to do what's right, want to learn, and then as you begin to do things for God, it begins to come up. You don't see it, I see it. I see it. That's my job. 
Then what do I do? Do I run over and say, oh, I just see these great spiritual gifts in your life. Oh, let me tell you what they are. No. That'd be the worst thing you could do. My job is then to get you everything into your life that you need to get you ready for this warfare and let God bring it up. And you know what? Then everybody sees it. My favorite verse, and I don't know how to explain this. I really don't. I probably shouldn't even say it. In my mind, I don't care who you are, where you come from, how many jetliners you hijacked, it doesn't matter to me, as long as I wasn't on it. Everybody gets a fair chance. I don't have the right as a pastor in my mind when I look at somebody and say, ah, he'll never make it. She'll never make it. I don't have that right. <clears throat> I may not see those things in their life, and they may have a lot of problems, and just through 35 plus years of dealing with people, it may be uh, the point where I say to myself, boy, this is going to be tough. But I never out, I never outguess, try to outguess God. I know God can do the impossible, and many times I, I have seen that happen. But the bottom line is this everybody gets a chance. But boy, I'll tell you over there in Acts chapter 8, that old Ethiopian eunuch, and this has nothing to do with the story of him getting saved other than the fact old Philip sitting down there looking at a little boy in that chariot and the Holy Spirit of God says Philip go join yourself to that man's chariot I don't know how to tell you this there have been young men and young ladies in my life that I've seen exactly what God had for them and just as clear as I'm standing here talking to you God has said to me see that young man you see that young couple you see that young lady well, let me tell you something, Bob. You get them everything they need. You take whatever time it takes. You get whatever they got to have that they can't afford. You get everything that they need in their life because I'm going to do something with that person. And I'm telling you right now, go join yourself to that man's chariot. My whole life, there have been men and young ladies and couples that God has put in my life and said that exact thing through just as sure as I'm standing here. When I see those seven things that are in somebody's life or, and, and, and they begin to develop those things and I begin to see in your life the abilities that you have, it becomes clear to me, at least in some form, what God's role is for you, at least in this church. And I began to see how God wants, and I began to see, you don't see him, I see him. It's not your job to see him. Timothy didn't see him. David didn't see him. Moses didn't see him. But in the process of time, God revealed it to him. And as you grow as young Timothy did in Acts chapter 16 and you, you exercise your faith and your senses through this process of transformation through a New Testament local church under the pattern of Paul and Timothy, in time it becomes clear to everybody, not just me. It becomes clear to everybody what you do well and what God's role is for you, not only in this church, but as God wants you to do. See, this is not a definitive study of the spiritual gifts. You'd get that in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But rather, how you, this one is about how you, now that you're at a point in your life, how do you get to that next level? That's a lot of what we got to talk about New Year's Eve. But the truth of the matter is, before you can get some things, before we as the church can get some things, 
we're going to have to lose some things. Just simple. Just that simple. You are some of the most tremendous people that I have ever met in my life. I have young men that know the Bible. I have young ladies that really know the Bible. But you know, when it comes to the gifts, you've got to recognize some things. And this is where you've got to understand. And sometimes in a church situation where you see somebody doing this, and you don't get to do this, or this person does this, and you, 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 you don't look at it the right way. Let me tell you something. Many of you really have a good handle on the Bible, and many of you, but God has not called you to be a pastor. He just hasn't. And that's okay. That's okay. Being a pastor is one of the gifts. He told Timothy, don't neglect that gift. The gift that he's talking about was in 1 Timothy, the pastoral epistle. He saw in him what it took to be a pastor. Being a pastor requires some special skills that not everybody has. And it's simply that's not God's plan for you. You don't walk around saying, oh, I'm defeated because you know what? You need to understand, it's doing what God wants you to do may not be what you want to do. You think I started out wanting to be a pastor? I had no idea. But being a pastor requires some special skills that not everybody has. It requires sensitivity. It requires tremendous personal uh, self-motivation uh, uh, and self-discipline. I've watched this over the years. It, 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 I watch it. Most pastors, most pastors are not, most good pastors are not very good preachers. And most good preachers don't make very good pastors. I've watched that thing come true for, for almost 35 years. It's absolutely the rarest thing, rarer than the Hope Diamond today in the world that we live in, to find a pastor who is good at both. Simply because of the fact that, it, that there's, no, there's no discipline involved with it. There's no discipline involved with it. I've watched some of the biggest churches in the 70s, in the 80s, and the 90s were built by some of the greatest preachers you ever saw. But as a pastor, they flopped. Those churches that were running five and six thousand dollars, five and six thousand people. <laughs> After that pastor died, and you know what he did? He built around him all kinds of staff members, gophers, who did all the work with the people because he didn't want to be around the people. And that worked for a while, and that thing went up to 5,000, 6,000, 7,000, and everybody said, wow, look what a great church it is. It wasn't because of him. It was because of his preaching, but not because of his pastoring skills. And when the man died and the preaching was gone, those same churches are now hard to count 900 to 1,000 on Sunday morning. Good preaching doesn't make always make a good pastor. Good pastors don't always make good preachers. It takes a blend, and there's some certain special skills that somebody has to have, and let's face it, not everybody has it. You know there's two kinds of pastors in the Bible. I don't know if you ever saw this or not. Here is again, patterns, models. You know there's two great models of the two kinds of pastors in the Bible that you find in life today. And there's two verses that go hand in hand with them that I think some of the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. Somebody gave me this about 20 years ago, and I never forgot it. Got it in my Bible about nine places. <clears throat> two kinds of pastors in the Bible, two kinds of pastors in ministry. 
David and Saul. If you ever want to study how to be the right kind of pastor, study David's life. If you ever want to study to be how the wrong kind of pastor, study Saul's life. You know the two verses that go along with them? Well, for David, it's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to it. God speaking. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. You see, that's God's type of pastor. David was God's kind of pastor for Israel. Saul wasn't God's choice now, was he? You know the verse for Saul? Isaiah 65, 5. Pastors would say, stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. There it is. There you are. There you are. And I've never seen anything in all my life truer than that. Not everybody's cut out to be a pastor. It's okay. That's not a, that's not a, that's not a kink in your spiritual manhood. That, that doesn't mean you've you got to go out and blow your brains out. Doesn't mean you got to walk around and, and many times, <clears throat> I've learned this myself, many times we want things for us because of our arrogance, because of what we think is a status symbol, and we miss what God's got for us because that's not what God has for us. Some of you are great one-on-one people. You thrive on it. That's a gift. That's <clears throat> your, your, your ability to take people and teach them Minister to them. I'll come up to you and I'll say, hey, uh, you know what, uh, so-and-so, you need to, you say, oh, you did, did that. What I'm looking for. You thrive on it. That's your gift. Every day of the week in somebody's home, there's 20 or 30 people being taught some level of the Bible here. Not even talking about Thursday night. Some of you have that ability to take somebody else and invest your life into their life like nobody I've ever seen. That's a gift. You take them through discipleship one. You give them over and above what is in there. You sit and listen to their problems and their heartaches. You, 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 you take them, some of them you go through Bible basics. Some of them you go through, you know, some of you are teaching the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And it's, it's actually affects people's lives. But the real thing is, you're good at it. And on top of that, you like it. Your day, you get up, other people are thinking, well, I'm going to go do this today, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to go get this, and I got to go here, or I got the ball game I'm going to get to go to, or I'm playing this tonight, or I'm doing that tonight. You get up in the morning saying, I can't wait to tonight to get in that Bible with so-and-so. That's your gift. That's your gift. And maybe down the line, God, as you grow, I'm not saying you should ever be satisfied where you're at. I'm saying what God gives you now, then the gifts that you have now, is you keep exercising those gifts, wherever the, 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 the end of your life is not yet, unless Jesus comes and you get killed in a car wreck. Down the line, you may have, some of you young may have 20, 30, maybe 40 years if Jesus doesn't come. You think you're going to stay at this level? No. As you grow and you, you grow in faith and you grow in grace and God uses you, you come down the line where you, you, God gives you exactly what you need as you go up those levels. But you got to exercise it. It's based on what you do with the Word of God that gets you where you want to go. The ministry's people. 
the Laodicean teaching that you have one primary gift and, you know, uh, and then you have secondary gifts and when you take this spiritual test. Let me ask you a question. What was Jesus' primary gift? Was it water walking? How about changing water to wine? That was a good one. Of course, today it'd be wine coolers. Was that his spiritual gift? Now, this has always bothered me. When I hear somebody get up and they say, well, you have this gift, and this is your main gift, and you have this gift, and this is your main gift, and this is your main gift over here, and you have this, you know. I, I, always, I always thought to myself, didn't Jesus have everything? What, what, didn't Jesus have every gift that there was? And when I got saved, doesn't the Bible say you're now complete in him? Aren't I sold to my process to become more like him? Well, if he's got all the gifts and he's everything, and I'm in him, and I'm supposed to be more like him, how does that limit my gifts? In time, you ought to have everything that you need. Now, maybe God won't call you to do, God has one specific thing that he wants you to do, and down the line he may change that, but the bottom line is, as you keep growing, whatever that is, you'll have everything you need to do the job. You see what it puts a mess you in when you limit yourself? And you simply say, well, this is my primary gift. My primary gift is humility, so I'm just going to work on that. No, your primary gift was humility. <laughs> you just lost it. As you develop the character of God in your life, God develops the gifts of God, the power of God in your life, through grace and faith to do whatever His plan is, but not what your plan is. Our job and my job and your job is to find out what that is. Some of you gals and guys are great, I think, in the counseling scenario. Remember we talked about, what, four years ago? How we wanted to get to the point in, in time where we had a viable counseling ministry? I mean, we're not there in the place where we have it, you know, where we have a sign out front and office hours. But the bottom line is this. Six years ago, many of you said, uh, you know, I, I, I want to do that. Five years later, you are doing it. Remember how I told you early on that counseling and dealing with people is like going to a hospital? I mean, when you go to a hospital, there's three basic levels they grade you at. And I look at counseling the same way. You know, if you go into the emergency room and you've got a guy who's got, uh, had a heart attack, <clears throat> and you go in and you were playing softball and twisted your ankle, who do you think is going to get priority? They're going to give you two aspirin and tell them to call you in the morning. <laughs> You're going to be over in a thing for nine hours. You know who's going to get the priority? The person who's got the heart attack. And in a hospital, in a medical scenario, it works on a level. And it's the same way in counseling. I grade out dealing with people and people's problems in three aspects. <clears throat> the first one's just Band-Aid and <clears throat> That's just somebody that comes in with an ouchie. Maybe they broke up with a, boy a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they have some issues in their life. Maybe they just don't have any friends. Maybe they're just depressed. Maybe they're this, whatever. And you know what? It's something that you can get into their life and you work with them and you help them and you get them involved and you meet a few people. You bring them through discipleship and you, they, they, just, they just, some of you are very good at that. The second level is what I call broken arms and apodectomies. It takes a little more time with that. Somebody can do it with a broken arm. You don't move it around until he screams and then just say, well, it's broken. Here's two aspirin. It'll heal on its own. No. You take a little time. You've got to set the arm, don't you? When you take out somebody's appendix, it's not a thing where, you know what, <clears throat> where you, like the guy on the phone, you know, all right, now here's what you do. Take that knife and put it right here on your stomach and make an insight. Shouldn't you be doing this? Yeah, but I'm a pastor. I'm too busy right now. I'm out on a golf course witnessing to the world. Go ahead and do it yourself. 
No, no, you take the time, <coughs> you perform a proper appendectomy. It's a little more complicated. They got a little more problem. Maybe now they're in depression. Maybe they got a satanic uh, uh, problem in their life, you know, a stronghold, something they're struggling with. Maybe it's cigarettes, maybe it's booze, maybe it's whatever. Some of you are really good at it. Some of you, I see some of you young ones, I see you have those things that already, I see you have the ability to get to that point in your life. It's obvious to me, but that's my job. And then the third level, brain surgery and heart transplants. You know what? <clears throat> you may take it. I think they can do appendectomies. What? You nurses, how fast is an appendectomy? I mean, once you get on the table, they put you out. How long does it take? 20 minutes? 20 minutes? You know, huh? Okay, I'm asking you. Don't look at me and shake your head. Talk to me. How long? 20 minutes? Uh, don't forget the OR. I'm talking about the operation itself. 45 minutes. Okay. Okay. When you chew a heart transplant, how long does it take? How do you know? But they're like eight or nine hours. Sometimes they have teams that come in and finish it. Yeah. You know? One guy works on the heart. One guy works on the valve. One guy works. It's like going to a garage, Firestone, you know. Well, how'd you like that? How'd you like, you know, heart transplants always bother me because I know what you're getting. You're getting a heart that was cost probably $60 million paid for by the lowest bidders. That always bothered me. And then you got too many guys involved. What if, you got a, what if you got a guy who's having a really bad day? What if you got a guy that just wants to get out of there because he's got a hockey game to go to? It could be bad for you. I mean, it could be bad. But you know what? My point is, it takes a lot more time. You've got to put a lot more into it. And sometimes you have to bring teams in. One guy does this for four hours, and the reason why they do that, what doctor could tediously for three or four hours stand there and then not make a mistake? So you bring in teams, and sometimes dealing with people in this level, you've got to have more than one people work with them. You've got to put a team together. Now, please, don't read into this. If, I, if you're somebody here that's being discipled and I have two or three people working with you, it doesn't mean that you're in a bad case of scenario. <laughs> as you grow in faith, as you grow in faith with the character of God, God gives you the power of God. As you exercise your senses, the gifts of the Spirit, what you need to do the job that God calls you to do. Not everybody has the same gifts at the same time. The strength of any church, including this one, the strength of any church will always be its diversity. I don't want 200 pastors. I don't want, I don't want everybody being able to do the same thing. There's no diversity in that. The strength of a church is being able to be diverse. The strength of a church is being able to get to the point where you can do whatever God calls you to do and everybody adds a piece to the puzzle. You know what? When I got saved, I took about five years and probably got my feet, maybe a little longer, got my feet on the ground. But ever since that time, the goal of my life outside the Bible itself is to try to be diverse. 30 years ago, I went on a quest. I went on a quest to read everything I could read study everything I could study, apply everything I could about people, places, music, history, architecture, science, nature, government, culture, war, dogs, animals, religion, geology, philosophy. It doesn't doesn't matter. I don't know of anything in this world that the Bible doesn't connect to some way, some form that's going to help you down the line. You need to broaden who you are. 
I'll tell you one thing that uh, I, I, I was talking to, to uh, 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 a number of people uh, like to read books. I was talking to Betsy this morning. I was going to talk about Betsy. John's got this new fandangled thing here. Which is, what's it called, John? A who? Real loud. I can't hear you. A Kindle reader. Neatest thing you ever saw in your life. About that big, you can put nine million things on it. Carry. It'll even read it back to you. I, I love that. That kind of technology if you want to go someplace. But Betsy was saying, Betsy's old school. That's why the guy down to the mission love her so much. <laughs> Betsy said, you know what? I just love getting a book, holding it in my hands, and reading a good book. You know what we don't do today? We don't read. We don't read. And that's why when you get into conversation with people, you look like a tree stump. You, you don't know how to converse with them. I mean, it's, it's, it's just that simple. You know, you have, to, you have to expand who you are. And that's my goal for us as a church. I want a church full of people that I can call my go-to people. You know what? I can grab you in any scenario and put them in it and know exactly that they'll know exactly what to do. They got the, the, that, that requires diversity. It requires it kind of the ability to get in any situation that I can put that person in and know that person will do exactly what they needs to be done. And people like that are hard to find. But it comes not from everybody being the one gift. It comes from the diversity of gifts. When I was 14 years old, that would be 1964. I got the greatest gift a kid could have in 1964. Now, I know that most of you who grew up long after that won't identify with this. Your kids certainly won't. And if you have grandkids, I guarantee you they won't. See, birthdays today are racing bikes, power, the big, whatever those things are, all computer electronic stuff, you know. Getting you a, a phone you can call the president and, of Russia with, you know. I mean, just great stuff. I mean, all the electronic stuff. In 1964, I got the greatest gift that any 14-year-old kid. I wanted one all my life. My dad wouldn't trust me with one until I was, thought I was old enough. It was in 1964. You know what it was? Mm-mm. It was a handy-dandy combo pocket knife. You ever see him? About that big. Had a spoon, had a fork, and it was a genius because the spoon and the fork went on the same end. Put the spoon on one side, fork on the other side, that way you could have them both out, eat one. I mean, it was beautiful. It had a skinning blade. It had scissors. It had a saw. It had tweezers. It had a regular blade. It had a flathead and a Phillips screwdriver. It had a pick. It even had a magnifying glass. For a dollar more, I could have got a flare gun. <laughs> My dad opted not to get me the flare gun. <clears throat> that handy-dandy combo pocket knife was able to get me through any circumstance for a year after I got it. I ate my meals. <laughs> well, we didn't go camping back then. My dad worked in a steel mill. I mean, uh, it, it, we, we ate at home, but I had to have some place. So for a year, I ate my dinner with my handy-dandy combo pocket knife. My mom and dad would laugh at me. I still go to the flea markets. <clears throat> and I, Jan, I, I still see them for sale, you know. I've wanted to buy one, not, and they're probably like three bucks now. They're not worth anything. 
but I wanted to have one just because that for the nostalgia of it. You know, never bought one. I know I'd never be able to eat my meals with it. <laughs> so I, but, but I'll never forget that. That, that, that handy-dandy combo pocket knife was able to get me through any circumstances you faced. If you needed a spoon, there it was. If you needed a fork, there it was. If you needed to skin something, there it was. If you needed a pair of scissors, you had it. Tweezers, there it was. If you needed a regular blade to cut something, if you got a screwdriver, you needed it there, there it is. If you couldn't see, you had a magnifying glass that you could start fires with if you needed to, with the right angle from the sun. Unfortunately, I used it to burn ants, but that was my even 14 years old. I say all that to say this. As a church... We need to be God's handy-dandy combo pocket knife. My job is to equip you for any situation you face in life. Remember, the job of the church is fourfold. Save you, train you, equip you, and send you out. Most of you have never seen my library at home. Not a big deal. Most pastors, you go into their office... And I don't even have an office. But most pastors, you go into their office, they sit on a desk, all wrapped around books. Ever see that? I mean, you go in there and you sit down, and the guy, you sit there saying, whoa, wow, look at all those books. 500, 800, 900 books. I sit in an office. You know, most pastors, if not all of them, have never read any of them. You know, there's places where you go to get your picture taken as a pastor in a studio that they have all the backdrops that you, you know, you, when you do your kids, you know, like a snow thing or, or winter one, you know, there's actually a backdrop of, of pulling down with thousands of books behind it. Did you sit there like, you know, I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I was sitting in a guy's church here a while back when lady died and I was doing her funeral and I was sitting in the pastor's study there in his office in the church and we were talking. And I've known this guy for years. This guy's the dumbest bozo you ever saw in your life. I mean, I like the guy, but he's about to lose his church. He has no clue and he's so arrogant nobody's going to show him anything. And I'm sitting in there and I, he's surrounded by books. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm looking at his books. You know, I'm talking to him, but I'm looking at his books. He's got some great stuff. He's got some really nice stuff. I mean, it's everywhere. He's got 600, 700 books. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I know he hasn't read these. Because in the pastors, it's a, it's a status symbol. The more books you have, the more you people think you study and the more you know. But I know he doesn't read them. You know why? Because if he read all that he had up there and applied what he read, he'd know a lot more about ministry than he does because he had some good stuff up there. You know what? Status to him. You come down my house, down my, my, down my basement, get past Buddy and Daisy, where I do my work over there in the corner, you know what you're going to find? Probably, probably find about, oh, I don't know, 50 plus, what I would call my primary books. You see, in 35 years of ministry, I did something that I think was the greatest thing I ever did. I built a library, for me now, I built a library so that I can find anything I need to find about the Bible, in the Bible, in history, anywhere. It took me 35 years doing it. I must have went through 10,000 books. 
I got built around me. I got stuff on the books of the Bible, commentaries that will blow your mind. I got stuff on the Old Testament breakdown of the nation of Israel and the kings of Israel that'll just make you weep. I can go anywhere, anytime, any place, and in 15, 20 minutes, find exactly what I need in the Bible if it's understandable in the Bible. You know why? Because I, want, I didn't need a lot of fluff. And then you take it out, I got about 20 or 30 other, what I call secondary books, <coughs> that I use as backup to those to find something else. But I found out, you know what? It doesn't take a library of 700 books. It takes you systematically keeping your head on straight, finding what really has works and what really gives you what you need, and then amassing that information where you can get it, not where you got to remember where it was. And you get that and you use that, and it becomes the greatest single resource assets you have of putting the Bible together and making the Bible work for you. You know what? That's the way I want this church. Just if I got something I got to deal with in the Bible, I want to be able to go get this book, this book, this book, and this book, sit down and figure it out. If I got a problem someplace, I want to take that person, this person, this person, and put it to them. I want, I want this church to be so in tune with what the Bible is and, that, and putting it together as far as how the Bible lays out that I can pull you out in any circumstance and put you in any situation. And, 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 and just as I got... A hundred plus books that I can go to to find out what I want. I want to have a hundred plus, two hundred plus people that I can put in any scenario, in any situation that will do exactly by the model, by the pattern, and exactly the way it needs to be done. That's my goal. Now the bottom line is this. In closing, God calls all of you. I don't care where you're at today. I don't care how far you are from God, how close you are to God. You're somewhere in the middle. If you're saved, God calls you. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to pick up the phone. But God has something he wants you to do. And sitting here this morning, he sees you in that role. And you know why you're so unhappy in life? You know why that things aren't going well in life? Because you're grieving that spirit of God that has called you to do what he wants you to do. And you're just hell-bent for election. You're going to do what you want to do. That's it. Is there anything more irritating? I can't stand this. That when you're in a home and the phone rings and nobody answers it. Drives me nuts. Maybe you, you do it. I don't know. It's like finger down a chalkboard to me. Now, I don't, if you want to call me, I don't answer the home phone. I really don't. You want to call me, call me on my cell phone. I don't answer the home phone. The only time I answer it is when somebody else won't answer it. And I'm trying to do something, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings, and it rings. And I'm thinking, I'm going to give it one more ring, and it rings, and it rings. You know, and Barb's got Otis out, you know, or doing whatever, and she's in the shower, or whatever. And I'm, I don't know that, because I'm up downstairs, she's up there, and it rings, and it rings. And finally I'll say, will somebody answer the phone? It irritates me. You know why some of God's people get so irritable? You know why they have, get out of sorts with things? I'll tell you why. Because that phone keeps ringing and 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 you won't answer it. Yes, sir, baby. I may not be the smartest guy in the world, but I am the fastest one in the slow class. Two types of Christians in any church. Just the way it is. Not a bad thing, it's just life. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what church. Two kinds of Christians in any church. You have those who will never miss an opportunity to grow spiritually. 
And then you have those who will never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity to grow spiritually. Right now, in God's foreknowledge, He knows and understands all things that He wants you to do. And me. He sees you and I in that plan, in that role that He saved us for. And when we don't fulfill that, we grieve Him. And again, our success as a child of God will simply be based on recognizing, learning, and understanding God's plan for your life and then doing it. And those who find out through the biblical process of spiritual growth of what God wants them to do as they grow, as they grow, and as they grow, God gives you the gifts to do whatever job He wants you to do. The model in the Bible is so clear. You know, I think there's three men in the Bible that really represent what I'm trying to say. The first one is Moses. And you know, when God called Moses, Moses was afraid. Moses was afraid that he couldn't do what God called him to do. Remember that? It wasn't that Moses was a bad guy. I don't think it was even the fact that Moses didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Moses, like a lot of God's people, was afraid he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. And Moses basically said to God, God, is this what you want me to do? Gee, God, I don't think I'm able to do that. You know what God said back? God said, Moses, I never asked you to be able. I just asked you to be willing. You see, you don't, God's not concerned about your ability. God's concerned about your availability. God doesn't care, care if you can do it or not. God doesn't want you to be able. He just wants you to be willing to do it. He'll take care of the rest. Jeremiah is the second one. God saw Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about it? Jeremiah, like so many young Christians, said, God, boy, I'll tell you what. And God says, I know what your problem is, Jeremiah. And he said this to him. Don't be afraid of their faces. You know, the thought of standing up in front of people or the front of dealing with people sometimes just terrifies people. But just like God told Moses that it wasn't matter he was able, that he had to be willing. You know what he said to Jeremiah, he said, Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. You know why? Because I'm going to put my words in your mouth. And Jeremiah turned out to be one of the greatest prophets, as Moses did in all of the Old Testament. Then the third one is Paul. <coughs> Paul's a guy that, <coughs> before he was saved, his whole life was about persecuting God's people. And where one of them was afraid to, to, that he couldn't do the job, the other one was afraid where of the people that he had to do it with. Paul's problem was the fact that he just had the wrong lifestyle. And here's a man that was on the road to Damascus to go kill some more Christians. And God met him on that road and turned his whole life around. And you know what the great statement about his life is after he got it all put together? It's Acts chapter 9. He says, Lord, what would thou have me to do? That's where we need to be today. It's not about your ability. It's about your availability. It's not about your, your character qualities. We don't have any. The only character qualities that you and I need to have are the character qualities of Christ. And when you put those in your life and you try to transform yourself to be like Christ and you get the right attitude and the right thing in your life, then God takes those things and molds you and makes you and puts you right where he wants you to be. And he gives you the gifts to get it done. Everything that you need. Building the character of God first in your life. And then the character of God flows and the gifts of God come and you have the power of God in your life. You know, 
the tragedy in ministry. And I'll just tell you this. My job is to get you in every kind of adverse scenario to help stretch you and exercise you. My job is to put you in every kind of situation I can find to get you exercised and strengthened. But the bottom line is simply this. The real tragedy of ministry is that every saved man and every saved woman, God calls them. As he sees you here today, in his mind, he has an exact plan that he wants you to do. You're a spoke in the wheel. You're a link in the, cha- in the chain. Everything that God has for you to do is tied in to an overall process that God wants to put into your life. And he'll give you everything that you need. But you and I got to be the ones that decide that's what we want to do with our lives. And I think the most tragic thing at the judgment seat of Christ will be a Christian who looks back and sees <coughs> not just all the things that God had for him to do, but all the things that God had prepared to give him along the way to help him get the job done. There won't be one thing that I can say in that day of why I didn't get the job done other than, you know what, Lord, I just didn't want to. And that's the tragedy. That's the tragedy. This next year as we move through, we're going to change a lot of this. A lot of things need to be redefined, and a lot of people need to come to the point where that we're past now playing the game of church. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Just as Christians grow, churches grow. And just there are levels of Christianity in your spiritual growth, there's levels of spiritual growth within a church. And as you grow, some things have to go. And that's just where we're at. And it's a thing where, you know what? We're either going to build a church the way God wants it to be by the model or we're not. I'm not interested in a social club. I'm not interested in a meeting place. I'm not interested in having a have it come. I'm interested in one thing, doing what God has called me to do and finding as many people that want to do what God's called them to do and then getting it done. End of story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and